several folks who uh, don't listen to Facebook or watch this live on Facebook as it's being broadcast right now, they'll pick up the podcast and that goes out to countries, uh, places I've, I, I don't know how it goes there. Recently I've heard that there are folks in Corpus Christi that are listening to it. God bless you folks. Uh, I wish I knew who you were, but the Lord bless you. <laughs> Never been to Corpus Christi. Uh, I do know something about the body of Christ, but I've never been to Corpus Christi. And, and, um, there is an interesting thing about communication. I have discovered in learning several languages, and I'm not that proficient in any of them, I don't think, but I have studied and, and learned and have communicated <laughs> in uh, oh half dozen different languages and uh, when I studied Greek and Latin I don't use those much but uh, I did very well back in the day <laughs> I can't remember any of it but uh, <laughs> um, it's fascinating though that even in in looking at different languages you can get into a lot of trouble if you don't understand it. For example, when I went to England and people would say, well, you can put your groceries in the boot. And I'm sitting there, I'm going, they won't fit. My boots are too small to put groceries in. <laughs> of course, the crazy thing is that the trunk of a car is called a boot in England and the hood of the car is called the bonnet. I'm sitting there, it doesn't look like a bonnet to me, but, <laughs> you know, I'm, and if you're trying to translate that into another language, you have to know whether the person is British or American to be able to translate it correctly. Isn't that right? That's a real problem. And, and if you go on from that, not just within, say, one language to know that there are different meanings to words, you end up having things like blind people. Blind people... Uh, they don't see things, but that doesn't mean that they're stupid. It means that their other senses are heightened, which means they hear better, they remember better, uh, they smell better, they, they can uh, pick up all kinds of little sounds that we don't bother who can see because um, we can just look, you know, and, and we don't have to worry about these things. So they live in a different type of communication. Now, if I, if I take that just a little step further, and I look at writing, the kinds of writing that you have, in Germany, the people write extremely long sentences. And they always put the verb at the end. <laughs> so you have to listen to this big, long sentence, and then in English, we would have three or four sentences made out of that, but you couldn't translate it because you have to know what the verb is so that you could put the verb at the beginning of the sentence in the translation. I, I, I discovered, too, when I came back from Germany to the States that I got into a lot of trouble because the Germans are very upfront, in-your-face, direct. And it's not mean... They're not being threatening or anything. That's just the way they are. I remember we had a youth group meeting, and uh, 
this guy was going on. What was he talking about, Jan? He, um, he was talking about kids, teenagers, you know, um, something that they were doing that they shouldn't do, that it was a sin. And this girl, what? Was it smoking? <laughs> and this, <laughs> this girl just turns and looked at him, and this guy was about 350 pounds, and she said, well, isn't gluttony a sin too? <laughs> I mean, just, she just right in your face, you know, <laughs> and, and, and the poor guy was in shock, you know. She wasn't being mean, she was being straight. She says, you're trying to tell us something, but look at you, what's the difference, you know? And, and so here was this, here, here are issues. One of the things that we look at here, particularly in the West, is uh, education and the, the right of all to be educated. You do know, though, that most of the people in the Bible were illiterate. They, they couldn't read or write. And just because somebody is illiterate doesn't make them stupid. We tend to think that if you can't read or write, then there must be something wrong with you. But that's not true. People who are illiterate pay close attention, especially to stories that are being told, and they remember them, they memorize them, and they have them put into their minds. They use portions of their minds that we as readers don't have to use because we can always go back and find the book and maybe go back and underline it and reread it and find a way to look at it that way. That is important to understand that communication is essentially cultural and situational and it's focused on particular language groups. And so that when we start to look at this speech that Stephen is going to give in Acts chapter 7, I have to sit down and ask myself several questions about this particular speech. He's being accused in chapter 6. We saw this. In chapter 6, he's being accused of speaking against the temple and the Torah, the law of God. He's speaking against two of the main things that make Jewish life possible, the traditions that have come down to us, and God who dwells in the temple, and the law that God gave to Moses. And if we abide by these things, we have the promises of God that we're going to live. And the they are accusing him three times. They accuse him of speaking against that. And now in chapter 7, we're going to read his defense of the accusation. Now, whatever's happening in chapter 7, at the end of the chapter, we won't get there till next week, at the end of the chapter, he's going to die. There is something in this speech that is so dynamic and powerful that it evokes this incredible response of anger and hatred that they are going to uh, forget Gamaliel's advice who told the Sanhedrin, he said, don't try to uh, punish these people. It'll disappear if you just let them go. But if you start to punish them and kill them, then the thing is that this might spread all over the world. <laughs> it's going to be that Gamaliel was right. 
And the persecution is going to begin at the end of this chapter. And I take a look at this this whole speech. I've read it several times a day this last week and, and several times before. I want to know what's so upsetting about it. <laughs> I mean, you don't have to like it. You don't have to agree with it. But when I read it, I don't feel the emotion that I got to kill somebody. That it, I sit there and I look at this and I'm thinking, why is this particular speech by Stephen in his defense so offensive to the people who are listening? And I've got to say, I need a little bit of insight into why people and what people are thinking back then, what do they hear when he's speaking? What is it that they pick up that causes them to be in so much turmoil? Well, that's, that's sort of the background now to this passage of Scripture. Let's read it. Verses 1 to 16. And the high priest said, Are these things so? In other words, the the accusation was, He's speaking against the temple, and he's speaking against the law, the Torah. And the high priest said, Are these things so? And he, Stephen, said, This is his defense. Hear me, brethren and fathers, The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran. And he said to him, Depart from your country and your relatives and come into the land that I will show you. And he departed from the land of the Chaldeans and settled in Haran. And from there, after his father died, God removed him into into this country in which you are now living. And he gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot of ground. And yet, even when he had no child, he promised that he would give it to him as a possession and to his offspring after him. But God spoke to this effect, that his offspring would be aliens in a foreign land and that they would be enslaved and ministered, mistreated for 400 years. And whatever nation to which they shall be in bondage, I myself would judge, said God. And after that, they will come out and serve me in this place. And he gave them the covenant of circumcision. And so Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac became the father of Jacob and Jacob of the twelve patriarchs. And the patriarchs became jealous of Joseph and sold him into Egypt. And yet God was with him and rescued him from all his afflictions and granted him favor and wisdom in the sight of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And he made him governor over Egypt and all his household. Now a famine came over all Egypt and Canaan and great affliction with it. And our fathers could find no food. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent our fathers there the first time. 
And on the second visit, Joseph made himself known to his brothers, and Joseph, Joseph's family was disclosed to Pharaoh. And Joseph sent word and invited Jacob, his father, and all his relatives to come to him, 75 persons in all. And Jacob went down to Egypt and there passed away, he and our fathers. And from there they were removed to Shechem and laid in the tomb which Abraham had purchased for a sum of money from the sons of Hamor in Shechem. And may God bless the reading of his word. Amen. Amen. This is, this is a little history lesson, it seems like, at first, first glance. I mean, it's just, he's just talking about Abraham and the patriarchs and God. I mean, did anybody take offense at that? Anybody feel like getting up and throwing stones at me? Nobody? <laughs> I'm grateful for that. Thank you. <laughs> I've had tomatoes thrown at me. And <laughs> but it's amazing what happens when you're preaching out in the open air, what people may do to you. But it's uh, never, never had anything like that happen. Well, the question at the beginning is, is this so? Is this true? Here is the accusation. Is it true? What would we expect in an American court of law? You would either say guilty or not guilty, right? <laughs> I mean, that's it. <laughs> you wouldn't sit down and go back 1,500 or 2,000 years or 4,000 years and <laughs> start going through the history. Imagine 400 years in Egypt. That was just one section. America isn't even 300 years old. Think about that. And, and they lived in Egypt for 400 years before they came out. I mean, that, they just sort of glance over this stuff, but it's, I'm sitting there thinking, this, this is crazy. What is it that they hear about the story? What is it when the story that they all know so well is retold, that it starts to get to them underneath their skin and make them angry? Well, it's not simply yes or no. I know that when Paul is on trial in Acts 25, and he's uh, speaking to Festus, he says this, he says, I have committed no offense either against the law of the Jews or against the temple or against Caesar. His defense is, I haven't done any of those things. <laughs> and yet here I am in chains, you know, and, 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 and you want to try me for questions about what I believe in, and put me to death for that, but I haven't done anything against those very things. And this was the young man, by the way, who they put their cloaks in front of when they began to stone Stephen. Isn't it interesting that he brings up that very issue? I, I, haven't, I haven't done that. 
when I look at what are the aspects of the historical word that he brings out, I'm beginning to think he is telling a story in a certain way that's through speaking directly to the leaders of the, of the nation and to the people who are the rulers of the people. And, and he's looking at them and he is bringing particular things out that they are both aware of and that he is emphasizing that they haven't paid attention to. That they have a law that they're supposed to follow and yet they don't. That they have promises that are available to them that they have not accessed. And that they have to look out for one who is going to come and they were blind to actually seeing him. So this is, this is how it begins in this particular passage. There are three main people throughout this speech that he is focusing on. It's Abraham, it's Joseph, and next week we'll look at Moses. And he's going to look at these three aspects, and then he's going to bring it together to a head to point at the very issue that these people are struggling with and don't comprehend or understand. The first thing is, he says that uh, as he's retelling this story, he begins by talking about our Father. He says, hear me, brethren and fathers. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham. He is not removing himself from any of the Jewish law or traditions. From the very beginning, he says, I'm placing myself here squarely in the midst of what you understand. <laughs> Abraham is my father. He's your father. He is the one who had the covenant with God. And then what he does is he begins to look not at the faith of Abraham, but he looks at the God of Abraham. And in this, he doesn't look at anything that Abraham does by faith. What he looks at is what does God do when he begins to reveal himself to people in this world. And it starts off with this. God who shows up, He's going to appear. Verse 3 says, And he said to him, Depart from your country and your relatives and come into the land that I will show you. You see, he shows up. And this guy who doesn't believe in God is confronted by a God who suddenly speaks to him. A God who appears. He's a God who speaks. He's a God who moves. He's a God who gives an inheritance He's going to give them an inheritance. He's a God of promises, a covenant-making God. He's a God who will judge those who are not going to follow him. He gives this covenant, and in the midst of that, he dwells. This is what Abraham does. He dwells. <laughs> he goes and lives somewhere. <laughs> That's what he does. He dwells, and he circumcises. <laughs> In, 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 the, in the midst, we see what does, 
what does Abraham do? Well, God says, circumcise, so he circumcises. He says, dwell, dwell. He, does, he says, I'm going to give you an inheritance, but the inheritance is going to be a long time off. I'm making you a promise. This is the promise that God's going to give to the people. And in this promise, it's going to happen in a long time. He even tells them that there's this little section in between of 400 years where they're going to be in a foreign country before they get back to the place of their inheritance. That's something, isn't it? In other words, before he has any kids, before he has anything else, he has a promise from God. He has a covenant that God makes with him. He has these things that he holds on to. And God says, down the future, something's going to happen. Something's going to happen down the road. Far beyond Abraham's time. Now that's important. Why? Because he's talking to the rulers of Israel right now. And saying, that time is now. He's saying it's not just something that will happen sometime in our future. It's happening in our day. What the fathers and the patriarchs were looking forward to, I want to tell you the promises that God has given, He gave them. This isn't something that's different. This is the fulfillment what you don't see is the fulfillment of what God intends to do in your lives here and now. <laughs> Somehow, I think that message still needs to come through to us today that <laughs> the presence of God is here. What he purchased in Jesus is available to each and every one of us. It's not something for a day down the future. It's not something for the people of the past. It's for the people of the present. Now, in the midst of this, he, he then moves on and he quickly glosses over Isaac and Jacob and he gets down to the 12 patriarchs. And from the 12 patriarchs, he zeroes in, not on all the good and bad and ugly stories that are told in Genesis, he zeroes in on Joseph. Why? Why does he pull Joseph out of the hat? And in the midst of his defense, he not only is talking about the promises that are going to be fulfilled, and he talks about the, 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 the issues of a God who does all these things, that he's dependable and reliable, and that he can do it, and that we need to open our eyes to see what God intends to do to speak and move and, and to bring promises into our lives and fulfill them in our lives and in our time. Here, here it is. He picks Joseph because Joseph is the most perfect picture of Jesus in the Old Testament. You see, when you look at Joseph as a type of Jesus... He's rejected by his brothers because they envy him. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> they, 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 they're not going to miss this. The, the rulers 
the ones who were there who passed judgment on Jesus are there. He's confronting them. These are the ones that said, crucify him. These are the ones that went to Pilate and said, take him away. And in the midst of all of this, here, here is this picture that he says, Joseph was rejected by his brothers, sold into Egypt, but his fate is reversed by God. God is with him and frees him from all of his afflictions. He finds favor with the king and becomes ruler over Egypt. In other words, the one rejected by his own people is empowered through God's intervention and is in a position to save the ones who rejected him. <laughs> Did you get that? The one who's rejected by his own people God shows favor on him and puts him in a position to save the very people who rejected him. Now that is exactly what Jesus has done. The next thing that we are going to look at here is that there's the double visitation that is exposed here between first the his brothers come down and Joseph recognizes his brothers. The brothers don't recognize him, but when they come down the second time, he reveals himself to them and they go bring their father and they all come down and are saved. And they're saved from a certain death. Maybe they know or maybe they don't know that they're fulfilling the very word that God spoke to Abraham. But this is a portrayal of Jesus who is the rejected and rescued Savior. The double visitation with the possibility still for acceptance or rejection. You see, it's right there in front of their faces. You can either accept him or reject him. And he's telling the story in such a way that they know exactly who he's speaking about. Though he's using the term Joseph and the pictures out of their own law. The law is the first five books of the Old Testament. And out of their own law, he's throwing it right back in their face. The focus in these two sections of this speech is on the salvation of God in the stories that he has chosen. This indirect way of answering the accusers as to what they charge him with show him that the accusations are baseless. This is not an argument about the temple and the religious practices of the Jewish people, nor is it about a rejection of God's laws. It is about recognizing who Jesus is as the promised Messiah and thereby gaining the salvation promised by God to the patriarchs and delivered to both Joseph and, as we shall see soon, to Moses. The good news is that the promised Messiah has come. Can you not recognize him? The stumbling block in all of this is the cross. The cross and the resurrection 
These are the two things that aren't being mentioned. But they're there in the background and can't be avoided because they were all present when it happened. They know of their guilt in having Jesus condemned. And and now, when we look at the cross, the question comes up, if the scripture says, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree, then how can Jesus be the Messiah who was crucified on wood? If he was hanging on the wood, how can he be the Messiah He's cursed. Now, now that would be a a rejection of who Jesus is because I'm looking at that and I'm saying, but the law of God says this to me, so therefore that's the way it is. (laughs) But the problem is that you still don't understand that he who knew no sin became sin for you. He who was walking with God and there is no curse upon him took all of our curses upon himself so that we can go free. That is a major change in my thinking, a major change in my worldview. I've got to change instead of thinking about me and myself and I. I've got to start looking at God and what has God done and what is God doing and what is God offering and what will God do if I surrender to Him. The whole The whole message that he's presenting here is throwing everything on top of of everything that they have believed. They're still looking for the answer, but they're looking for the answer in the wrong place. They want a deliverer from Rome, and what they're getting is a deliverer of their souls. (laughs) They, They want freedom from tyranny, And they're offering freedom from sin. My mind has to change. My perspective has to change. The temple is no longer a building like this. The temple is made of human flesh and bones. Hearts that are filled with the presence of God and are being built together. That is the temple where God dwells. See, it's not a temple with stones. It's a temple of people that God is putting together, building together. They they might be a bit more patient to listen to what Elsie has to say beyond Joseph, but I can imagine by this point they're starting to get pretty antsy on the inside and anxious and upset. What, what is he saying? If what he says is true, if Jesus is the Messiah, not just a prophet, if he is the fulfillment of the promises that God gave to 
Abraham and Joseph and Moses. And he is the judge of all men. I'm in trouble. So what do I do? And the same question is placed to you and me. You either repent or you try to put people down to try to make it not so bad for yourself. You either accuse them of being wrong so you can continue living the way you are or you repent and change the way you live. Change the way you think. It's got to, it, there's no either. It, it, that's it. Those are the two options. You don't have any other option. And the clearer that that is made to us, that the only option is to either repent of my sin and invite Jesus into my life to forgive me and cleanse me, or I have to say the whole thing is a lie and I've got to stop it from spreading because it's shining a light on the evil heart parts of my heart. I've got to do one or the other. And suddenly I begin to see how, how devastating this message as as Stephen starts to build it up, remember he had the face of an angel when he opened his mouth to speak, meaning the authority of God is behind what I am saying. And he comes with that authority from the very presence of God and presents it to the ones who crucified Jesus. Just the way that he does it is brilliant. The way in which he draws this out. Not by saying this is a new religion or, you know, you, you, you got to change from Hinduism to Christianity or something. That's not what it is. He says this is our fathers. We are the ones who are the inheritors of the promises of God. Open your eyes and see what good things God has in store. So in Galatians, in Galatians, Paul writes, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. He says, Jesus became the curse for us. We are called to freedom, brethren, only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another, for the whole law is fulfilled in one word in the statement, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. We're set free to do that. We're set free to do that. And yet the ones who bring such a wonderful, powerful message they become the ones who are persecuted by the ones who can't stand it because they're unwilling to repent, unwilling to change, unwilling to allow God into their lives. We don't want that to be our case, do we? When I look at this, I've got to say, Lord Jesus, I need you. And I need you to come in into my life. 
Is the gospel an offense to us? Or is it our hope? Is the gospel a stumbling block for us? Because it's going to interfere with our way of life? Or is the gospel the hope that we've been yearning for, the peace that eluded us, the encouragement that we all need? The way that Stephen in this speech communicates that is pretty powerful. And in his roundabout way that they would fully understand because it's caught up in Jewish tradition, Jewish understanding, the Old Testament, the Torah that he is quoting. It's a powerful, powerful message. He comes out in his roundabout way saying, open your eyes. Don't be blind anymore to the love that God has for you. Open your heart. Let Jesus transform you from the inside out. It's not about religious ritual. It's about a relationship with one who loves you to the point of being willing to die for you to remove the sin from your life. Amen. Lord Jesus, I pray that you would allow this word to sink deep into our hearts, that we too would come to the place of appreciating that Jesus is the fulfillment of all of your promises and that they're yes and amen. And yes and amen in our lives. Yes and amen to us. Oh, Jesus, we thank you. Lord, if there's anyone here who has not given their lives to you, I pray, Lord Jesus, that this would be the day when angels rejoice as they turn and say, Jesus, I need you in my life. Forgive me. Come, help. Help me. Transform me from the inside out. Fill me with your presence, your spirit, your love, your goodness, your kindness. Come, Jesus, I need you. Let everyone who calls on the name of the Lord be saved this day. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.